tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. Welcome to Episode 9 of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. This is a show where we are looking at the Tangent Universe books published by DC Comics, beginning with a series of nine books from 1997. And these were books that created a brand new universe with new characters and a new backstory and new adventures, with the only starting point being that the main characters had to use an existing DC Comics character's name. This episode, we're going to be closing out the first wave of Tangent books with a little something special, in that for the first time, one of the book's creators is a creator on one of the other books that we've looked at. In fact, the creator is someone who has had something of a hand in every issue we've looked at, the mastermind of the Tangent Universe, Dan Jurgens. This episode, we will be looking at Doom Patrol number one, which finds a quartet of, of adventurers traveling back in time to the present, claiming they've come to stop the end of the world. Now, the we I've been talking about would be the hosts of this very show, including myself, Michael Bradley, and my partner in crime, Mr. Sean Engel. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. This Now, this is the part of the show where we would normally launch into feedback from you folks, uh, the listeners out there. But this episode, we're going to spend a little time at the end of the show talking about the first wave as a whole, because as I said, this is the the ninth book in that uh, inaugural wave. So we're going to hold email and website comments this episode, but be sure to keep writing in because we'll pick up with those again next time, and we really do appreciate all those who have taken the time to write in. Uh, we've, we've heard from a lot of people, both on the website and via email so we, and it I, I told someone on email uh, just last week that you know getting emails from listeners really helps keep the wind in the sails of podcasters so be sure to keep writing in oh yes and we've also gotten some nice comments on Facebook uh, yes again specifically shag has been heavily promoting the show and we really appreciate you shag for uh, doing this he, he's even said that this is one of his uh, sort of favorite shows to listen to so I, I to get shag a person who i deeply respect in the podcast world to say that this is one of the shows that he looks forward to listening to is always uh, a great well i don't want to say honor because that'll just stroke his ego far too much but <laughs> it's it's always great to have to, to know that shag's listening yes yeah so if you're ready let's go ahead and get into this 
Yep, we'll go ahead and do this. This one is Doom Patrol number one. Again, the cover date was December 1997, and the release date was October 1st of 1997. Cover price again was $2.95 US and $4.25 Canada, and the title this time out was Saving Time. The writer, like you said, was Jan- Dan Jurgens. The penciler was Sh- Sean Chen. Inkers were Kevin Conrad and Ray Kreising. Colorist was Jason Wright. The separations were done by Digital Chameleon. The letterer was Dave Lampier. The assistant editor was Frank Berrios. The associate editor was Dana Curtin. The editor was Eddie Braganza. And Tangent was based on concepts by Dan Jurgens. October 1st, 2030. This is the day the world ended. Amidst the destruction and chaos ravaging downtown New Atlantis, Lourdes Stay and her boyfriend Peter attempt to find some shelter from the explosions. Lourdes says that she has to meet her mother at Daylight Labs, but Peter says it's suicide if she doesn't get to a shelter. The same sentiment is shown by a New Atlantis police officer, but Lourdes leaps over the cop telling her that Firehawk doesn't play by the official rules, especially in times like these. Discarding the gun, Lourdes makes it to Daylight Labs, where her mother, Deidre Day, the synthetic android Rampage, and the crystalline female Star Sapphire are preparing a time ship for a jump into the past. If all goes to plan, the team hopes that they'll be able to stop the destruction of the planet by changing history. But before they can make the jump, the lab is assailed by policemen, flanked by a much older, darker-costumed Adam. The nuclear hero tells Day that he knows they're trying to travel in time, and he won't let them cause this destruction. Day says that she's trying to save the planet, and has Star Sapphire blast the Atomic Avenger. Boarding the ship, the crew prepares to leave, while the Atom protests outside the cockpit, saying that their trip won't work, as they don't know about the influence of Nightwing. The Kitty Hawk blasts skyward, and the Atom gives chase, preparing to use his powers to melt the ship's core. But, at the last moment, he locks eyes with Lourdes and realizes that he can't bring himself to destroy the ship. And that moment of hesitation gives the crew just enough time to make the temporal jump, while behind them, the Earth erupts in a mass of red and orange flame. Cut to exactly 33 years earlier, this time in New York City's Times Square, where terrified citizens watch a strange spacecraft crash into the street from a rift in the sky. Emerging from the cockpit of the Kitty Hawk, Dr. Deidre Day and crew tell an onlooking policeman that they need to speak to the media. In no time at all, Day's crew, now, now referred to as the Doom Patrol, are addressing the press about the coming global catastrophe. One reporter snidely asks if they can see into the future, and Deidre misleadingly tells the reporter that Star Sapphire is a precognitive and is never wrong. But, much like Fox News at an Obama press conference, the media discount everything she says. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Frustrated, Deidre spells out three specific events. A failed Russian rocket launch, the assassination of an NSA agent, and a freak storm that will lead into the world's destruction. But still, the reporters are unimpressed and outright dismissive of her claims. The next day, the Doom Patrol are bemoaning their luck when they witness the Kitty Hawk being put into impound. Luckily, they were able to stop the worker from towing it, and they in turn find out from the worker's copy of World's Finest that the Russians are going to launch a rocket ship to Mars. The destruction of the ship was the first event that Deidre said would lead to the Earth's destruction, so the crew grab the Kitty Hawk and head to Russia, 
When they arrive, they don't know what will cause the explosion, so Deidre has Star Sapphire stop the rocket from launching, just as a precaution. Of course, this alerts the Russians, who open fire on the team and end up setting an RPG into the ship's thrusters, causing it to explode. The Doom Patrol barely escape, but Lourdes thinks that they were the actual cause of the incident. Meanwhile, Nightwing director Marcus Moore watches in disbelief as the Soviet rocket goes up in flames. Frustrated, Moore orders an agent to take care of the Doom Patrol with whatever means possible. Cut back to the hotel where Deidre and crew are chillaxing when a knock on the door signals the arrival of NSA agent Jake Wiley. Wiley says the president wants to have the team brought in for a debriefing, but a quick scan by Rampage reveals that Wiley has an explosive device concealed under his pin. Cover blown, Wiley sets off the explosive, blowing up himself and the room. Luckily, Star Sapphire was able to protect the crew with a force field and float them down to the ground. But as they look up, they see the Kitty Hawk being taken away by a government helicopter. Deidre yells at Sapphire to blast the chopper, but in her weakened state, she hits the Kitty Hawk, rupturing the chronopod and starting the storm. Realizing that they were the anomaly that started all these events, the team try to think of a way to stop it. Luckily, they are met by the Atom, who along with Rampage and Star Sapphire lift the Kitty Hawk into the rift, causing it to collapse and stop the electrical storm. At the same time, Deidre and Lourdes were headed to Daylight Labs, where they are able to keep the power running to the experiment that would have destabilized the Earth's core, destroying it some 33 years later. Crisis averted, the Doom Patrol revel in their success, knowing they've changed the present, and then in the future, the Atom will warn them about all of this. Well, he would, if tangling with the temporal storm hadn't scrambled his memory for the last 30 minutes. The end. <sighs> yeah, time travel stories. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know I mentioned it probably at the, show, at the end of the show that I do a Doctor Who podcast over at Two True Freaks. Mm-hmm. And I'm a fan of time travel stuff, especially on Doctor Who. But sometimes in stories like this, time travel just makes my brain hurt. And I had to, this was one of those stories that I had to read quite a few times to kind of connect all the stuff that was going on. Yeah. And not that that's a bad thing. It's actually kind of a good thing that you get more readability about the story and you have to analyze it. But in the end, there are some things that just don't quite work so yeah that would be my only my only minor complaint about this otherwise i really enjoyed the book i thought it was a good story it was just again these are some of the most dense sometimes difficult to follow comic books around but enjoyable reads nonetheless yeah i think this was probably the most dense issue we've had so far as far as like the number of uh words per panel and and the number of panels per page Mm -hmm. Uh, but this is a book that I find very fulfilling and frustrating as a comic book reader it's fulfilling because it was a heck of a good read a little slow at the start but about halfway in it kicked in and I just couldn't put it down but it's also very frustrating because as you said the heart of the story is about time travel and it's the kind of time travel that just makes my brain hurt Mm -hmm. Um, I, I did think it was a very satisfying end to this to the first series of books that really didn't have an overarching story but yet it's also frustrating because there are still some dangling threads out there that 
that are teasing us and making me want to see more of this universe. But overall, I liked it. It was a it, it kind of had an action movie thriller vibe with some humor and suspense. And, you know, like I said, it was a good ending to the first wave and it felt like a final chapter. There, there were a lot of allusions to other books in the way or in this first, you know, wave, but it was its own story as well. And I think what Jurgens pulled off was a difficult trick because all of these books are standalones. So there's no overarching storyline, but there was a way to wrap it or, he, he did a good job to wrap it up so so that it felt like a, a conclusion yeah i will agree with that the, there's no there is there's connective tissue holding this universe together but this isn't like one story that you could read in a trade paperback and one issue builds to the next right i i haven't read and i know we might as well reveal it now we're going to be covering the tangent universe superman's reign and i believe that's more of a contiguous story yes these are more individual stories that just happen to be linked together by existing in the same universe so there is a bit of a disconnect there but yeah again yeah an enjoyable read but it's frustrating because of the whole time travel, you know, to, to use the Doctor Who word, timey-wimeyness of it, so. <laughs> right. Well, let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the issue. Sounds good. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. So let's start with the cover. Um, this one reminds me a lot of the Metal Men cover that we did back in, I think it was episode two, in that the characters' eyes are all hidden in shadow, so you're not really sure 
where their allegiances really are. Mm-hmm. I can see that as well. I also uh, harken back to it sort of looking as a Nightwing cover where it was another group dynamic book and mm-hmm. the Nightwing cover having more of a, a dark – um, mysterious, almost mystical feel, especially with a character of Star Sapphire, who we'll get into in the book, who has this blue aura surrounding her hand, like she's using either some sort of magic or some sort of energy weapon or something. So it's it, it's it's another good cover. Uh, I like Sean Chan's art. It's a nice sort of. It's not der- it's not necessarily derivative of Dan Jurgens, but it's nice counterpoint to Jurgens. it's not it's not exactly like it but it's close enough that it doesn't feel out of place in a Jurgens pen story right yeah he's got a very traditional look to his his artwork <laughs> yeah it's 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 not like what we saw with jander Sama's stuff it's not that very 90s stuff and there's a lot of great artwork throughout all of this mm-hmm. another thing about the cover is that it <laughs> it reminded me of gi joe from the late 80s when they moved away from the solid military stuff and everything became ninjas and neon colors. <laughs> it does kind of have that look, especially especially with uh, Dr. Day uh, kind of front and center with her very militaristic look and the pouches and yeah. it looks like, you know, a, uh, a, some sort of communicator there. It's 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 a good it's a nicely designed cover. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean I mean when I say that I mean that in a very complimentary way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting inside uh, page 1 you know, it was probably just coincidence or maybe due to the fact that they were both written by Dan Jurgens. but I thought it was an interesting that this book and The Atom, which were, from the way we're looking at them, were the, were the bookends for the series, started with a sprawling view of, of a streetscape. Mm-hmm. In, in very different views, too. Where, you know, The Atom was a pretty typical street scene full of hope and optimism, and here it's the end of the world. Yeah. I, I This was one of the things that kind of confused me about the narrative of the store story because here looking at the the street sign here we see Peachtree Street so I've got to assume that this is New Atlantis this is Georgia that they're running through and you know uh, Lourdes is trying to run to Daylight Labs which is centered in New Atlantis but later in the story they end up in New York City in the past and it looks like the same Daylight Labs there so hmm. I don't understand because if you well, and we'll get to it on the next page. But the the police officer has an NAPD rather than an NYPD, so I don't know whether that was a confusion or whether this is supposed to actually be New York City or or what. But it, that just kind of confused me in this book. But this is this is a spectacular page, and it does very much mimic the opening page that we saw in the Adam issue of the Adam flying through the streets of this very futuristic city and looking very bright and futuristic and this one looking very end of the world with these plumes of flame burning through the ground it's just it, it's flying through the air and it, it's it's very much end of the world it's it's like a it's like a good oh what's his name Roland Emmerich movie which is kind of hard to imagine because those two words really don't go together all that often <laughs> Page two, uh, that second panel there, you know, where the police officer is holding a gun at uh, Firehawk. Oh, and yeah. All, all I can hear now since I've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, all I can hear is her doing this in the pr- Chris Pratt voice of, you know, <laughs> kid, you know what they started calling me when I was three? Firehawk. <laughs> Who? 
Firehawk, man. Oh, oh forget it. Uh, I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy yet. Oh, I'm so you... far behind on my Marvel movies, it's not even. Oh, I, 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 I seriously recommend you go see it. It really, you know, and it's probably coming to the to the dollar theaters pretty soon. So if you can go see it for cheap, it's it's well worth it. I, 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 it was one of the. I put it up with the Avengers and with the uh, new Captain America movie as some of the best Marvel movies that they've come out. Hmm. Marvel specific. Marvel Studios movies. It's just great. It's a lot of fun. Wow. No, it deserves it. I think, I think it captured, um, it, it was, it was completely unexpected. And also, of course, if you haven't heard, stay till the end, because there's a phenomenal scene at the end that you just wouldn't expect to be there. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty much par for the course nowadays with the Marvel oh, yeah. movies. You, Stay till the credits are over. So. Yeah, well, and and sometimes they're hit and miss. Sometimes the end scenes are hit and miss, but this one is just phenomenal. I think you'll just walk out of the movie smiling. <laughs> um, pages, getting back into the book, pages three and four, it's throughout the issue, but we get some of this, like, future slang, you know, zip and glee and flopping. Sometimes writers go overboard trying to sound hip and futuresque, but I didn't think this was too overwrought what, what about you no i thought it was i thought it was put in there just enough and just having lords do it or firehawk do it kind of worked because she's supposed to be the youthful mm-hmm. exuberant teenage character so you would ex, you would expect her dialogue to be sort of of that era of the the sort of teen speak of that era so i didn't i didn't have a problem with it at all and it it didn't take me out of the book it kind of it kind of uh, gave the book a certain feel that was outside of what our normal uh, dialogue would be today. I mean, people, if you look today and you hear people using language from the 70s in modern time, you feel, you kind of feel that it would be outdated. Well, this would be sort of the similar thing. You know, something from the future just feels kind of outdated in our current time right now. So it worked for me. Cool. Um, page five. You know, here and, and throughout the book, I really like the chemistry between the four main characters. It it uh, it was reminiscent of the Fantastic Four in that it has that family type vibe, even though they're not all strictly family. Mm-hmm. And I, I I you're mentioning this being a sort of Fantastic Four analog is is exactly what I picked up on. Uh, all the characters seem to have uh, an analog in the Fantastic Four with. Uh, Lords, Firehawk being sort of the hot-headed type person, the Johnny Storm. We've got uh, Star Sapphire who can uh, shoot energy uh, energy fields or uh, create you know protective bubbles. You've got the uh, scientist, the intelligent one. Yes, granted, she's not stretchy like Mister Fantastic, but she's the brains of the group. And then you've got Rampage, who's kind of a powerhouse of the group. So I think the Fantastic Four analogy is a very apt one. And what I just realized is, too, we have three females and a guy. We're in Fantastic Four. It's three guys and a female. Hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if that was. Uh, I'm wondering if that was a direct idea that uh, Jurgens decided to do is sort of homage the Fantastic Four in this way. Because be. I know, I know a lot of people consider the original Doom Patrol to be somewhat analogous to the Fantastic Four, even though you could also put them in some way analogous to the X Men. Right. Oh, Marvel as well, but yeah, that that could be you know a sort of parallel that they're trying to make with the two two groups. You might say it's a parallel line. 
Oh, oh I see, see what, what you did, did there. there. Yeah. <laughs> Page six, calling the ship the Kitty Hawk. I liked that. It was a neat little throwback to a historical reference. Mm-hmm. The uh, I'm assuming this is you know if this is the first tri- the first ship to travel in time. It's nice to take a reference from the uh, first airplane or the first. Uh, you know, plane that flew that the Wright brothers flew. So right. that's that's a good analogy, or that's a good parallel. Again, using the word parallel to to put into this book. My next note's on page seven, and it's about the Adam costume, and I just love yeah. this updated costume. This oh. is you. You do you have uh, do you have other opinions? <laughs> okay, my, I, I'm willing. I'm willing to defend my opinion if you have an opposing opinion. Oh my my note. My next note was on page seven as well, and that was to say that I didn't care for the future Adams outfit. Oh, okay. See, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was a nice change to. He's he, if something. It, it makes me think that something has gone on in his life that has made him a more darker, a more grim, a more foreboding character, okay. and. Um, it's again one of those things where I'd like to see this expanded upon if it were ever expanded upon. Uh, you know, why did he change his costume? Why has he become more of a militaristic, uh, you know, type person? Why is he working with these pol- this police force? What's gone with gone on with the character? So that's kind of what I thought about that. Okay. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I can get behind it from that point of view. I, I was looking at it more from a design aspect, and then it was just. A solid black bodysuit, and there was nothing more to it than that. I, mean, I like the cape, which is black on the outside and blue on the inside, but that's from his present day costume too. So it's mm-hmm. just that the rest of it's just a solid black. He's got the uh, the atomic symbol on, on his uh, upper upper chest area, but I don't know the rest of it. There just wasn't a lot to it. But but no, I, I can definitely get behind what you're saying about you know why did he go to this more militaristic look and. Yeah, because they they mention on this page that he walks in like uh, royalty, like he owned the place. So mm-hmm. why why has he changed from the sort of ebullient, youthful, you know, sort of gosh shucks, ma'am type character to this almost nihilistic, you know, very dark costume, almost Batman like character? So it's it would be interesting to see what what caused this change, but yeah. unfortunately we're not going to see that. Hmm. Uh, because the world exploded. Yeah. Well, that, that, that does <laughs> tend to limit storytelling a little bit. Page eight. I, I don't, this is where things start getting a little confusing for me. I don't understand the comment at the end where D says that Adam is as arrogant as his father. And then he replies, you knew him. Who are you? It, it's alluded to that Lords or Firehawk is the Adam and, and Dee's daughter. Is that yes. where you picked up? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yet, see, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, see, on, I think it's the positioning of the word balloon and the line. I'm, I'm not certain if that line's supposed to be delivered by Deidre or whether it's supposed to be delivered by Star Sapphire because it would make more sense if Star Sapphire says. Uh, and arrogant as your father because she would have known the this Adam's father because perhaps she would have been dating the original Adam when you know he had the first Adam the baby the fir- the the second Adam so perhaps Deidre perhaps not Deidre but perhaps uh, Star Sapphire was the mother of 
this Adam's father, if that's making any sense. Now that I'm looking at this art closer, the tail of that word balloon goes all the way up, and it gets really thin and kind of gets mixed in with the, yeah. the ship. And it, it actually is pointing to Star Sapphire. Yeah, so okay. the, it, it, the, that was one of the things that confused me as well, because you saw, because you kind of had the, it was kind of seated throughout the rest of the story that Deidre and this version of the Atom had had a relationship and that Firehawk was the result of that. Right. But it makes more sense if this line here on this uh, third panel or this fourth panel on page eight is coming from Star Sapphire. So. Okay. All right. Well, that makes more sense. I guess I should pay more attention to the art in the book. rather. Than well, no, I, I, I'll admit I was confused by it as well. I was like, why is she saying that? That makes no sense. And I just kind of assumed that maybe it was a mistake. But now that I look at it, yes, the, the, the line of it does get very thin and does go up to Star Sapphire there. Mm-hmm. And it's not revealed until later on in the book, but while we're talking about Star Sapphire and her relation to the Atom, we might as well go ahead and, and point it out now. The Star Sapphire is... I can't think of her name, but they uh, mentioned it's, it's Merlis. It's Merlis. I can't remember what her last name is. Yeah, they mentioned her in the Atom book. I'm pulling out the comic right now. They mentioned her in that book as having a relationship with the Atom. She was mm-hmm. a famous actress, I believe it was. Here we go. Yeah, I think he – it was like Marilyn Monroe and yep. someone else and Marilyn Chambers – not Marilyn Chambers because that's – Cornier. Cornier, okay, yes. Socialites like Marilyn Cornier. So, yes, and I, I guess the backstory for her was that uh, when she died – she decided to be placed into cryogenic sleep until they could cure her death because you can do that, I guess. And what happens, something – she was wearing some sort of crystal when she was put into cryogenic sleep and when she was awoken and brought back to life because comics, um, the crystal somehow uh, incorporated with her body and gave her these powers. So. Right. It's it, like I said, it's a comic physics type thing, but it, it's a nice way of tying in this character with the Adam and with the first book and everything, but not having to make it a contiguous story. It's a nice way of just putting these little seeds and these little bits and pieces in the story to sort of, you know, give it a bit of connective tissue. Right. Uh, moving on to page nine. Basically, Adam is trying to warn them here about what we learned through the course of the issue, right? That mm-hmm. they are the anomaly, and, and that D and D hasn't figured that out yet because she doesn't know about Nightwing. Yes. Okay. That's at least that's what I'm assuming, and that's what I'm assuming that the, she expected the Adam to tell her at the end of the book, which he did try to tell her, but they couldn't hear because they were in the Kitty Hawk and couldn't hear him, which allowed them to go into the past. So it's some big cyclical temporal loop thing that I just uh, that again just makes my brain hurt yeah um, pages 10 to 12 I thought we had a really nice exciting sequence here and, and I like the big shot of Adam on page 11 but I don't really have much to say about it other than that um, on page 11 uh, I think m- my big note here is the kind of glance between Lourdes and the Adam and as he's flying outside the ship as they're getting ready to, to jump and the Adam realizes this is my daughter. Mm-hmm. I can't kill my daughter. I don't, you know, I, I know I have to stop them. I know this is, this is going to do something bad, but I can't destroy the ship 
that has my daughter in it. So it's it's a, it's a nice little touching moment here. And I think Chen and the artwork really conveys the idea that these two you know, make this quick connection and the Adam makes this connection and realizes that, that this is, this is his offspring. And, you know, despite the fact that he's wanting to try and save the planet, he can't bring himself to kill his daughter. And I think it's the arts done perfectly here. Mm-hmm. They even kind of look alike a little bit on page 11. So I'm yeah. not sure that was necessarily intentional. Yeah. They, they do have a bit of a similar facial features. Yeah. That's, it, it, again, Chen's art throughout this is really good. The characters all look very distinct, but yeah, there is some similarity between this this older version of the Atom and and Lourdes, so it's good. So then, after um, the explosion of Krypton, I mean Earth, on page twelve, <laughs> we we move to page thirteen, where we are back in the present with the, another big, very detailed and very uh, a lot of little details. Uh, in the cityscape. Oh yeah, there's there's uh, hints to Frank and Eddie's. You know, again, Frank Berrios and Eddie Braganza, who are the editors of this book. <laughs> uh, there's Brand. You know, we get some more stuff about Brand, uh, who is uh, the scientific or this uh, scientific inventor, the sort of Tony Stark type character. In here, we get uh, various uh, robots selling robo dogs. Ticketmaster is still around, so that's great. <laughs> Um, uh, the thing that amused me the most on this uh, page was the fact that World's Finest did an advertisement for um, Grundy jeans, mm-hmm. which I found was quite amusing because even even in the Tangent universe, Solomon Grundy wants pants. <laughs> that might be the single funniest in-joke reference they've made so far. I think so. I, I've got to assume that by this time that that little skit from the Cartoon Network show had been aired. So I'm certain. I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I'm trying to remember when that when they were airing, or if they were airing Super Friends stuff, or whether they are airing those Super Friends cartoons over at Cartoon Network. In the was Cartoon it, Network a thing at this point, or was I'm, it still part of? I'm certain it was because. Uh, you know, we should do research on this stuff rather than yeah, that would be professional podcast. Yeah, well, who who cares about doing that? But no, I've got to assume at this time that Cartoon Network was there. because yeah, because my kids well No, because my kids started watching Powerpuff Girls when they were young and that was in my my kids weren't born before the uh, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway. Maybe yeah, <laughs> best not think about it. Write in if uh, if you know about this and tell us we're wrong because we're willing to admit that we are. Well, I'm willing to admit that. Hey, I'm willing to admit that Sean is wrong as well. So all right. <laughs> uh, while we're still on this page, you mentioned the robotic hot dog vendor. And uh, fun DC history note: in 1942, DC started publishing a strip called Robot Man, which was written by Jerry Siegel and illustrated by. Leo Nowak, who was a member of the, the Joe Schuster Art Studio. Robot Man was a guy named Robert Crane, whose mind was transferred into the body of a robot after being fatally shot. And obviously, when that happens, you adopt the name Robot Man and start fighting crime. Now, the interesting thing is that the Golden Age Robot Man looked somewhat similar to the robot vendor here. And th- the uh, the Golden Age Robot Man was gray and, and had less detail, as you'd expect from Golden Age art, but they're kind of similar in appearance. But even more interesting is that the issue after Jerry Siegel left 
1943 because he was drafted and dropped all his comics work except for an occasional Superman story. But the issue after he left, they introduced a robotic canine companion called Robot Dog. <laughs> Robbie the Robot Dog, to be specific. And then, of course, you have the customer asking for a Super Dog, which is another reference you can trace back to Superman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I didn't know that. I my knowledge of Robot Man is obviously from uh, the All Star Squadron and uh, mm-hmm. and the uh, you know the stuff that they're doing over at Tales of the JSA. Right. I know Robot Man was a character that they did in All Star Squadron and stuff like that. Yeah, so, Roy Thomas uh, brought him back. So it, it makes sense. But yeah, that's that's a nice sketch of that. You know, I saw more shades of C three PO there. Uh, mm-hmm. His chest plate. His chest plate does have that sort of C-3PO look with the sort of circular uh, disc in the middle. But yes. uh, and, but that could also just be the fact that he's a, a golden robot, and that's kind of what I gravitate to when I see something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything until page 16. Um, page, uh, on page 15, I just wanted to say I love the giant fish on top of the sushi bar. <laughs> I it it I, I don't know I just loved it. <laughs> That's cool. I, I like that. I like that. There's a good amount of devastation here, and that uh, the policeman could take uh, can take deposition from a robot. He doesn't really need. And you would think that a robot would be a perfect thing to take a deposition from because his his memory isn't going to be clouded or faulty mm-hmm. or anything. He's going to be able to accurately define what happened during this time. So right. that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, the only other thing for this page, which might actually lead into what you're going to say about 16, is that I don't understand. The ship crashes, and everyone but Rampage is unconscious, but then less than a minute later, on page 16, they're all fully alert, heroic, and emerging from the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's comics, again. Comics, yeah. Why not? Now, I mean, they've got to have a dramatic sort of action pose, and this is a very fantastic for flashy, you know, show off, you know, who you are type pose. And I, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that you kind of expect. Oh, a yeah. big alien ship is crashing the little thing. Someone's going to come out and do something dramatic. Well, here you are. This is what you get on this page. So what'd you have about this page? Uh, basically this was, uh, what I had on this page was, um, I, now I remember this was where I remembered exactly who that woman that was referenced in the uh, Adam issue was. And ah, okay. Like I said, like I said before, she was one of the starlets that the original Adam messed around with and basically had something bad happen or with her when she went into cryo sleep. So we, we kind of covered, I kind of jumped over my note that I had on this page earlier, but that's okay. essentially what I had here. Okay. Um, my next thing isn't over until page 18. Okay. Where in panel four, it's it's nice to see not only a cameo by Lori Lamaris, but also that that there's a much douchier version of Google Glass that made its <laughs> debut in the Tangent Universe. Oh yes, and this was this was a couple of almost a decade and a half before Google Glass, and yeah, that is that's like <laughs> Google Glass with one of those uh, steady cams on the side. <laughs> Can you imagine wearing that thing? Because that thing's you know, gonna weigh like. 10 pounds. It's going to give you incredibly bad taco neck syndrome. I mean, you're going to be listening <laughs> to the left quite quite frequently with that thing. Uh, but yeah, the fact that none of these, the, that the uh, the press is just as uh, unbiased and willing to report news you know, in the tangent universe as they are in the irregular universe, so kudos to them. 
you know that you know uh, people people crash out of the sky and tell that you know the world's going to end and they're just like oh ha, 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 ha. we've got to tell about you know Britney Spears ass <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever I don't know what's going on in uh, Kim Kardashian's ass that's what I'm thinking. not Kardashian Kardashian <laughs> thinking of the Deep Space Nine characters. Let's see. My note was my next note was on page nineteen, okay. and uh, it was just the progression of the panels as Deidre is explaining the different things that are going to happen that are going to lead up to the destruction of the Earth, and how it has a really cinematic feel as sort of the camera is slowly uh, zooming in on her, mm-hmm. and then we get the little little portions on the side of the people, you know, sort of making fun of uh, that, you know, her saying that the Soviets were going to launch into space and. You know, the one reporter saying, good, the Ruskies, you know, shouldn't have beaten us to should never beaten us as a space race. So it's 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 a nice uh, progression of panels here that has a very cinematic feel. I like that. I guess um, I've got a little note on page 20 here. The uh, construction worker, which. That's either the most physically fit female construction worker (laughs) Or the most feminine-faced male construction worker ever, because if you look at that little circle inset there, her her face looks somewhat feminine. But then you look at that next panel; she's got arms that are bigger than my thighs. Yeah, yeah I assumed it was a woman too, but now that you're saying this, but um, I mean the hair is kind of feminine. As yeah, well. and, you know, and then that the face there on that. Uh, like I said, in that circular inset's a bit feminine, but you know, regardless. But I do find it amusing that in a uh, Dan Jerkins book that he decides to uh, name one of his characters Doomsday because, yes. yeah, Dan Jerkins has never been known to use the word Doomsday any time around. Nope. Um, I'm kind of hung up on whether this is a man or a woman now. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to to to, to, to confuse you about this person, because this generic person's or, orientation. Well, not di- orientation, but sexuality. The dialogue is, listen, hon, this ain't a garage. Hey, you're her, that day chick. You're the one they're calling Doomsday. Which, I, I don't want to sound like well, sexist it does, or stereotypical, but that doesn't sound like Well, it does sound like, dialogue. it does sound like a very, you know, sort of, you know, New York... You know, construction worker type type dialogue. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the facial features on on this person, she does look somewhat, or he does look somewhat feminine. But uh, yeah, I think what's best if we move on. Probably sad. Okay. Uh, page twenty one. We have a really excellent shot of the protagonist charging into action. Mm-hmm. I love that. And like I said before, how this how this team feels like the Fantastic Four. This image here. Is is very reminiscent of stuff that you'd see in the Fantastic Four oh, yeah. of them running towards the camera. It's it's just great. Yeah. Page twenty two. We get another reference to Green Arrow Cola, and I know we've talked a lot about the Easter eggs in the past eight episodes, but I just continue to marvel about how connected these are through the world that's been built. I mean, these aren't just a bunch of writers throwing out random Easter eggs, referencing their favorite you know DC comics characters or whatever there had to be coordination and planning here and mapping out this world and and culture of the tangent universe beyond just the main characters and their individual stories it's it's really well done 
yeah, it's not it's not like one book would have Green Arrow being a cola and the next book would have Green Arrow being a person right. and the next book having Green Arrow being a uh, type of restaurant or something. Right. It's it's all it's all very cohesive and yes, the like I said the interconnectedness of all of this is really a credit to Jurgens and what he's done to get these books out. Um I don't have really any notes until page 26. Um, page 24, I was going to just say that, you know, we've talked about Sean Chen and, and how we both like the art, and I really do like what he's been doing in this issue, even though I'm not really too familiar with anything else he's done. But the bottom panel here looks extremely painful. <laughs> yeah, that kick is uh, – the, the, it's not quite as bad as what we saw in the uh, Nightwing thing with Jandrasema, but <laughs> it is – she she's basically doing the splits and kicking two separate people uh, in the head yes. while leaping. It's it's a dynamic look. And her spine. Her, and and uh, I don't. Uh. Yeah, and she's also doing. Not only is she kicking to these two guys who are, oh, let's say six feet apart, both in the head. She's also twisting her body forward. So she's not only doing the uh, split kick, but she's also doing the uh, Ed Benet's boobs and butts pose <laughs> while she does this split kick as well yeah. so kudos to uh to her for being able to uh liberate her spine from her lower torso yeah so what'd you have for 26 let's see for 26 uh what did i say i just said that this is just an amazing splash page uh chen chen really does uh like we had with the explosion of krypton i mean earth uh <laughs> earlier in the book chen does really great explosions and i don't know if uh Chin has any uh, work with anime or anything like that, but it does have this one thing that I noticed anime uh, comics and anime uh, features tend to have are really good examples of explosions, and this is just great here as well. Mm-hmm. We also get a nice nod to the Sea Devils here and a little bit of insight to their future, as it seems eventually the tensions between them and the surface dwellers were eased somewhat, or at least enough that they were collaborating on a memorial to the... Uh, the Cuban Missile Exchange. Well, that's good to hear because the last time we saw anything about uh, New Atlantis and the whole Cuban Missile Exchange was in the Joker comic where they had basically forgotten what's going on with uh, all that and sort of the memorial that they had there was sort of laid to waste and had toxic waste lying around all the so. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and it's also interesting to see from a historical perspective that the Soviet Union wasn't dissolved in the early '90s of the Tangent Universe, mm-hmm. even though even though you would think that, well, we don't we don't specifically know what happened with the war between uh, the war the war was really more with Czechoslovakia. We don't know exactly right. what happened with the Soviet Union. So yeah, the that the Soviet Union was still around in the Tangent Universe was kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, my notes over twenty nine. Okay, go ahead. Skipping ahead to 29, you know, one thing I've learned from these books is that if a guy comes to my door wearing a black suit, a collarless shirt, and dark sunglasses, I'm probably going to run out the back because he's probably going to try and kill me. Yeah, that's uh, – yeah, when, when you get unexpected people showing up at your door looking like this, yeah, you should probably be rather wary. And it's, and it's, it's good that they have a uh, synthetic android there who can scan this guy for explosives, so – that that definitely helps. Mm-hmm. 
Was the Matrix out at this point? No, that was ninety nine. No, ninety nine was the Matrix. So this this was a little bit before. The, I'm certain the concept. Of, I'm pretty certain Men in Black was out before this. So I'm I'm pretty certain Men in Black was probably in yeah. people's mind. And then plus also the idea of the shadowy government agent. Yeah, you know was was a trope that was done well before even Men in Black. So yeah. so this this wasn't really out of the out of the norm or out of the. Uh, uh, it wasn't out of the norm, right? Um, page thirty-three. Okay. Adam's arrival here is pretty much the mirror of of one of the last shots we saw of the future Adam back on page eleven, which I think can't be a coincidence. Actually, yeah, I didn't even recognize that, but yeah, it is pretty much the mirror image of of that shot. His hands a little held a little differently, but it's a good that's a good catch there. And in, uh, yeah, that's a really good catch. Uh, it does have a, a very, day. but then of course this is the uh, current time, Adam, the much right. more oh, right. happier right. one. Um, I had a little note on page 32 that, uh, essentially star Sapphire rupturing the coronal pod of the Kitty Hawk was the thing that caused the, uh, storm. So not only, you know, essentially the, the if they wouldn't have come back in time, they wouldn't have caused all these things leading up to the destruction of the earth. But if they didn't do this initially, would the destruction of the earth even happen? So yeah, uh, I, time travel. <laughs> I had a longer note about that later on. That, all right. No problem. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that here in a while. Uh, but page 35, I, I guess kind of on, on a similar note, D says her presence in the present has caused this time-space reality rift, right? Yes. Okay. Just trying to understand for when we get to the end. Okay. Oh, yeah. and, and also D's father is Harold Stark. So very good. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, he he definitely does in that uh, in that panel with the globe sort of behind him. He does very much look like uh, Harold Stark from uh, not only from specifically more from the movie. I'm not all that familiar with the Iron Man comics, but he does have a very Tony Stark type feel. Right. So yeah, and that's all I've got till we get to like the end of the book. Okay, the same here. I don't have anything until the uh, till the end of the book as well. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving ahead to page 38. Help me understand the way history originally unfolded. However, that happened. The Doom Patrol in 2030 traveled back to 1997 with the idea that they had to stop three events. The Soviet shuttle explosion, the death of the NSA figure, and Day's experiment from going awry. Right? That's right. Okay. But by traveling back in time, their presence here not only caused the first two items, but caused an event that would cause the third. But they were able to prevent that experiment from going sideways. That's true. But if they know about these events before they traveled back in time and caused them, how did they know about them? And if they could have and if they stopped the events from unfolding the way they did originally, shouldn't the them of 2030 never have traveled back to begin with? Mm-hmm. Because they've changed history, which means the future is going to be changed, which will result in them never having traveled back in time, which means things will unfold like they did originally but I don't understand how they unfolded originally if the Doom Patrol wasn't there 
Yeah, this is this is what's been confusing me as well. And <laughs> okay. plus also plus also now we have the Doom Patrol stuck in in the 20th century, yeah. 1997, because they used the Kitty Hawk to explode. Well, I take that back. The Kitty Hawk. Let me see if they've got that panel. Yeah, they, it, they cra- used it that crashes. To close the rift. Yeah, they use the closed rift. It explodes, but it kind of. Well, no, it's that's the atom crashing through that building there, or Star Sapphire crashing through it. So yeah, the the ship explodes. So they're not going to be able to return to their timeline. Right. So essentially they're going to have an alternate version or a future version of themselves living in the 20th century. Uh, it Because right now, I mean, right now at this on this last page there's already two versions of um Deidre Day. Yeah. Or, or Deidre. No, cuz Lords was the the daughter of the oh, Adam. Right, 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 right. Sorry. So, uh, so there's That's two the versions mother. of the mother. So, yes, they've saved the future supposedly because they stopped the experiment that was going to destabilize the Earth's core. But they were the ones who caused all the stuff leading up to it. So, yes, how would they know in the future that they did? Oh, oh, my head. <laughs> Like I said, it's very, it's very fulfilling of an issue, but it's also very frustrating. I, I really liked it, but I just can't think about the logistics and the, the I guess the the mechanics of the time travel because I get a headache. Yeah, the same here. And like I said, I I like time travel stories, and this is a good time travel story. But trying to figure out exactly how things work in it, just sometimes, like I said, they 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 go literally well not literally they go figuratively over my head i i just can't grasp it yeah but anyway overall a good issue yeah i i fully agree and it, and a good way to kind of wrap up the story uh of the first series of tangent books you know we get a look into the future we get an idea that the earth is supposed to explode in 33 years from now but supposedly now it's saved so there could be future storylines if if that's the case which it might not be because they might not have done anything and might not know about it but i don't i i we need to stop talking about this we're back on our own time loop now i'm gonna start Uh, bleeding out my nose because of this Uh. well we thought we'd spend a little bit of time you know just just maybe five or ten minutes talking about the first wave as a whole um and while we've we've both certainly thought more of some books than others i don't think there was a bad book in the bunch oh no not at all i mean even the books that were that were kind of campy like the flash mm-hmm. and books that had you know not the best art like nightwing sea devils were, yeah sea devils i think i think yeah i think out of all of the books you could say that the weakest one was the sea devils and that also seemed to be the one that didn't really tie in all that much to the universe so i'm thinking that perhaps the cohesiveness of the story throughout the rest of the books was what helped make them such entertaining stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Could be. It was it was nice to have these really dramatic stories paralleled with the sort of goofy fun ones. You know, I I didn't dislike the Flash one, but it was definitely out of place. Um, overall, all the stories were you know from from what I'm getting from modern comics, it's very hard oftentimes to get a bunch of disparate stories from different uh, 
artists and different uh, writers to gel together into one cohesive storyline and be enjoyable throughout. Uh, this is uh, quite a task for um, Dan Jurgens to be able to do all this, and I think uh, he pulled it off really well. Mm-hmm. You brought up the, the flashbook, and, and one thing I will reiterate, I, I don't remember if it was you who pointed it out or one of the people who wrote in, but you know, it, it was different in tone, but at the same time, that that does kind of help because you 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 just you know like with the DC universe books maybe not so much today but let's say in the mid 90s you did have books that were different in tone you would have a book like um, Booster Gold that was more light you know and and uh, lighter in tone and then you would have more serious books like Superman or Batman mm-hmm. so. Yeah, you'd have you'd have books like The Flash that you yeah. know, had had a sort of uh, you know fun speedster characters yeah. or impulse. You had uh, the Teen Titans books. Uh, then you'd have uh, you know uh, the the Vertigo line of books, which would have Swamp Thing and uh, Hellblazer in it. So you had you had a variety of stories here. You didn't have this one universe that was all that that we see in the New Fifty Two, which has to have this sort of same feel throughout all the different types of the books yeah and and it's it was nice to have a a variety of stories with a sort of variety of different uh ways of telling the story throughout the throughout the series yeah everything doesn't have to be super serious all the time no it's nice to get a little variation in that and and really all the books did feel like a cohesive whole like they were all part of a shared universe and each each book explored you know a different aspect of the tangent universe you know some did tie it together a little more but each felt different from the other eight but but like they all fit together to make an entire world too so mm-hmm. yeah I, I i fully agree it's it, it is a credit to to all the writers that they were able to take this concept this idea of take a named character from the dc universe and do something radically different from it mm-hmm. and make it Make the stories, the individual stories, interesting, fun to read, uh, sometimes very dramatic, but also to give them some sort of cohesion, to give them a linking point. Uh, it doesn't have to be a dramatic linking point where this story leads upon uh, leads into this next story, but at least there's some elements from each story that kind of bond the series together. And I, like I said, it's some of the best cohesive writing throughout uh disparate uh types of writers that have uh that i've read in a long time Mm -hmm. it's amazing how much backstory was established and how much how rich of a world they built in just these nine issues Uh, like i said earlier there was a lot of planning and coordination between the books not just writers and artists randomly throwing out, out ideas but at the same time it felt like the creators for the most part had room to actually create and do what they wanted to do and you know we haven't talked a whole lot about the back matter just because it's it's hard to talk about that kind of stuff on a podcast but that stuff does help to expand on the creative side of thing and or things and and informs somewhat about how the ideas came together mm-hmm. yeah the, the back matter is definitely one of those things if you're reading the comic it definitely helps in in sort of fleshing some things out or 
basically filling you in on some things that you might not necessarily know about the characters that weren't specifically told in the story. Uh, certain relationships that might happen between characters or uh, you know what these characters are supposed to be analogs of. It, 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 the back better, yes, we didn't really cover it, but it, if you do have a chance to pick up these comics, it's it's well worth going to read those because it, it helps expand the universe above and beyond you know what the uh, actual story does. Right. One thing I'm curious about with the back matter is if it's included in the trade paperbacks. Sean and I are both looking at the original issue, so if anybody out there has the trades, I I would be interested to know if if that's included or not. Yeah, I think that would probably you know. See, I don't know. The, if this is a time. This is from a time where they just collect the actual issues, or whether they'd collect, uh, you know, all the. Uh, ancillary material with it as well it'd be it'd be nice because you know there's some nice interesting sketches of the characters different character designs different ship designs so it's interesting to look at and like i said it does help sort of flesh out the uh, books a little bit more than just the overall story right if you could pick just one issue which was your favorite <sighs> man it would probably It'd probably be a toss-up between Metal Men and Adam. I mean, Adam specifically because it sets up everything, but Metal Men I thought was just a a, a great story. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really good story. You know, there it, it's really hard because all of these, you know, even even Sea Devils, which was the one I think both you and I would probably say was the the least impressive of the run, were at least enjoyable reads. So it's it's hard to 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 pick one specifically, but. Yeah, I might have to, I might have to just pick the atom simply because it laid out all the foundations for what was going to be going on in this universe and you know set up and seeded pretty much everything else that we'd see here. So mm-hmm. I would say the Metal Men as well, um, with the Atom and the Green Lantern and even the Joker following close behind. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I everything you said about the Metal Men and the Atom is correct. But I would also give Metal Men credit because it was a war comic, and I don't care about war comics, but yet I really like that issue. Oh yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Same here. I'm not. I, I don't dislike war comics, but it was never really in my wheelhouse. I was a I was a superhero comic man. Right. But this was this was an incredible war comic, and I think I specifically think Mike McCone's artwork was one of the oh, things yeah. that really drew me in because he just did some beautiful, beautiful art in that. Yeah. Were there any books that? surprised you either in a good way or a bad way you know um i think i was surprised by the flash one because i was kind of i was kind of gonna think that you know this because i because i had heard that it was going to be sort of a teenage alicia silverstone type story and yes it was that and yes it was campy and and sort of comedic but it actually engaged me and and you know, kind of gave me a smile. I, I was, I, I also would have to say the Green Lantern one because I completely wasn't expecting an anthology story in the Green Lantern story. And having the sort of tales or those uh, House of Mystery type stories or Phantom Stranger type stories in there uh, was really kind of a change of pace. And even though Green Lantern wasn't specifically in the same uh, vein that we see Green Lantern today, uh, having a, an anthology tale was a nice change of pace there. And I liked, again, how it uh, developed even more of the Tangent Universe at this, uh, in this series. Uh, what about you? Um, 
Really only Nightwing, I think, and, and then I thought I would enjoy that one more than I did. I mean, I liked it, and we, and we talked quite a bit about it in, in, I guess, last episode, but I just thought I would like it for different reasons. Mm. It, it it did have I, – I don't want to say that it was the artwork that kind of brought it down because the story was, was great, and it was one of these very rich, very dense stories, but the – Again, I I hearken to the 90s-ness of the artwork that kind of not really left a – maybe left sort of a bad taste in my mouth. Mm. That's that's kind of what you can say. And bringing in the mystical stuff was maybe a little surprising or or unexpected, I guess, from what we had seen up to that point. It, It made sense within the context of how it was presented. But we really hadn't seen that too much to that point, so that was kind of out of the blue. But yeah, really, all we saw with anything mystical was the uh, Green Lantern story, and that right. really wasn't that really wasn't all that mystical. That was just kind of sort of Twilight Zone esque um, type stories, right? Night gallery type stories. So. Well, folks, we want to thank you all very much for joining us for the first wave. Um, we're actually going to take a week off from the show before we start the second wave. But if you still want to get your tangent fix, be sure to keep an eye on the website at greatcrypton.com because we normally release the show every two weeks. So two weeks from now, there won't be an episode. But every day or almost every day that week, I'll be posting a special series of things related to the tangent universe um, all week long, including promotional material, um, some fan works and a little something special that was whipped up by a friend of the show Charlie Niemeyer that I think you'll all get a kick out of <laughs> but then we'll be back on schedule for regular episodes when we kickstart the second Tangent Wave which was published in 1998 and books in that wave include ones focused on uh, the Tangent Universe versions of Superman, Batman Wonder Woman and we get second visits with The Flash and Green Lantern, uh, a revisit with Nightwing, and a whole lot of other surprises. So we hope you've enjo- been enjoying the show and that you'll continue to stick with us because, as Sean said earlier, we're, we have decided we are going to cover Superman's reign, and which means we're only really getting started. Yep, there's plenty more tangent to come. So we hope you'll keep listening, and we'll hope you come back here after uh, after the break. Yep. And I really do want to stress how much we thank you all for the support. When Sean and I were planning the show, we never really talked about it much, but I think it was always understood that this would be a very, very niche show. I mean, you know, our individual solo podcasts are pretty niche as they are, but this is even more so because you're talking about, you know, 18 books that came out in the late 90s that probably didn't sell just uh you know hundreds of thousands of copies so um but we've been blown away with the support that the show has gotten and we really seem to have struck a chord with people uh both folks who did read the book and remember reading them as they came out as well as folks who kind of want to know what all the fuss is about Uh, you know about a like i said a set of 18 issues that came out in the late 1990s and weren't reprinted for nearly a decade so um I, i don't think sean or i do podcasting for the accolades but you know hearing how much people love the show and and it really does help us out and keep the wind in our sails so again just thank you to everyone who's listened and a big thanks to those who have written in and have told people about the show and we're really thankful for all of it 
Oh yes, I, I I completely agree with Michael here. It's it's always great to hear from people who listen to the show, especially when the people say that they're really enjoying what we're doing. So thank you all for coming to listen to the show. And we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna do it all the way to the end. We're gonna cover the entirety of the Tangent Universe. So we we've got it all mapped out, and we're all ready to go. As the song says, we've only just begun. <laughs> But unfortunately, that's it for this episode. So thank you again, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye, everyone. just finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, hosted by me, Michael Bradley, and me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places, most notably Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It can also be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review maybe even a five-star one. All reviews help more people to find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about these books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Well, then you can email us at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your emails on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. Plus, he hosts a blog about the Man of Steel's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, called Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, both of which you can find over at GreekCrypton.com. And Sean hosts a Green Lantern podcast focusing on Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, called Just One of the Guys. He's also a guest host on Walking Dead Wednesdays, a Walking Dead podcast, and Who True Freaks, a Doctor Who podcast. And all of these shows can be found over at twotruefreaks.com. Speaking of Two True Freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the link at twotruefreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. Brainiac, what is it? Look, I just want some pants. A decent pair of bands. Mm, Solomon Grundy won't pay.